I'm Christian Perez, and this is Modernity and Absurdity. it's been a while since my last episode, but it's been a crazy summer. I'm pleased to announce that Modernity and Absurdity will soon be available on both iTunes and Stitcher. This will give our program a broader reach and make us accessible to many more people. I'm pleased to bring you my interview with a good friend, author Daniel Delafay. Daniel is Elizabeth, New Jersey, born and raised, and expresses himself through a variety of forms. He writes and plays music, he writes poetry, and is currently working on a manuscript, He studies politics, spirituality, symbolism, history, and a host of other topics. Daniel is a true Renaissance man in that nothing disinterests him. This interview was recorded a while ago in the beginning of the summer, and it took place after the release of his self-published book of poetry, Urban Jungle Mystic, available on Amazon.com. Daniel is an interesting young mind, and through his poetry we gain insight into his deepest thoughts and feelings. We get into Daniel's personal life, and we get a lot out of it. Although I may not agree with Daniel on a variety of subjects, we share many common interests and this outweighs any other disagreements we might have. So here it is, my conversation with Daniel Delafay. All right, so I'm here with Daniel Delafay, author of Urban Jungle Mystic. And sad to say, I'm actually his second interview, but that's okay. That's okay. I'll be your hundred interview if I can be. So how are you doing today, Daniel? I'm all right. I'm I'm good. Well energized. Slept well. Good. That's always important. Always important. Working for the man beats you up. <laughs> Working for the man gets you tired. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty exhausting. So you just self-published this new book, Urban Jungle Mystic. It's a collection of poems that you've written from 2009 to 2015. I've looked through it. It's great. It, it's basically like a, a snapshot of your life for those uh, that that period of time. Uh yeah. Would... Snapshot be a good word. I would call it a snapshot. In the introduction, I sort of uh, describe the poems as um, sort of a coming-of-age tale because I, I organize them chronologically, so they sort of illustrate um, the evolution of my thinking, I guess you can say, and, and also the evolution of, I guess, my voice as a writer. Okay. So I got a couple questions here for you, a little more than a couple, but let's see what we can do. So I got a couple two-part questions wrapped up in here. The first one is, what is writing to you, and what power do words have? Writing to me. All right. Um, I'm going to use a particular word here. Yes. The skeptic in you is going to hate this word. That's okay. Um, to me, writing... love you anyway, man. <laughs> to me, writing's like magic. Um, and I don't mean that in the sense of, like, shooting fireballs out of our hands and stuff. But I mean that in the sense of, like, <clears throat> language and using symbols to pass on information, to, uh, you know, record things, categorize our environment. Um, it's, uh, it's the source of, you know, science. It's the source of all of our creations. Uh, you know, words can be used negatively, words can be used positively, words can manipulate people, words can enlighten people. So it can be white magic or black magic, if you want to use those terms. It's a good um, so to me, like, words are power. They're very powerful. They can awaken us or they can put us to sleep if we listen to them and don't question them. Words have a lot of power. Yes. How critical are you of your own work? Critical of my own work? <clears throat> well, I state in the intro that I'm not totally confident and you know especially a lot of the earlier pieces that I made a lot of them are more rhymy and they're more verse you know less freeform stuff less experimentation um I guess I'm not too hard on myself like I was confident enough to put it in print mm-hmm. obviously but um I feel like I'll get more confident as as I keep putting more books out and but I think all artists are they're most you know critical we're the we're our biggest critics. Here's one that I was thinking about as I was reading your poetry, because I I'd listened to another interview you had done, and you were talking about actually the process of writing. Now, what is the fastest 
and, and longest it has taken you to complete a poem. Can you complete a poem in like five minutes, do you get inspiration and say, bing, bang, boom, I'm done? Or are there poems that maybe might take months or even years for you to complete? I would, I would say both. There are okay. definitely some pieces that uh, sort of just come out of me a certain way, and I don't really do much to it after that. Sometimes I, I'm happy with it that way, or I like the way it came out in that moment, and I'll sort of just leave it like that. So I guess the fastest I've ever written a poem was in a night, you know, maybe in an hour of the longest, probably a couple of years, just because there are a few that were worked on or revisited, you know, every so often throughout the years and tweaked and changed throughout the years, so. Uh, an analogy I've heard you use is like marble chipping yeah. away. Well, some of them, some of them grow, so they'll start off with a general idea and then I'll add to it and add to it. Some of them I'll, you know, kind of, kind of um, let a lot of material out all at once and then, yeah, chip away at it to make a form come out, you know, Sounds like good. a sculptor does, you know. They take this big piece of marble and then they, they work their form into it by taking stuff away. Sounds good, sounds good. Now, um, you very much like me are a huge fan of the band, uh, the Mars Volta. Yes. <laughs> um, all related projects, anti-mask and... Uh, I, I was just listening to that recently. Yeah, it's, it's good that stuff. That stuff is very good. Flea is on that too. Yeah, awesome. I mean, they, it's Just like awesome. the first Mars Volta record. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. So, Cedric is one of my favorite lyricists, but he has a certain way of writing lyrics to a song. So, um, with your poetry, Okay, do you prefer to tell stories or, as Cedric would say, paint pictures with words? Both. Both? I feel like, I feel like the pieces in my book do both. Some do one more specifically, like uh -huh. some of them, especially the longer pieces later in the book, I have a few in there that are like narrative type poems. Or they're mm -hmm. telling a story and they're, they're sort of uh, describing events. I guess in a stream of consciousness way, sort of what's happening outside and then kind of my reactions or what I'm thinking and feeling inside. But some of them are purely abstract, mm -hmm. especially some of the ones in the middle, the spiritual poems, those okay. type. They're very abstract, they, they paint pictures, but they, a lot of them paint sort of uh, symbols in a sense. Not always like specific images in our environment, but sort of like general vague ideas like spirals and waves and things like that. You want to... Um bring out emotion in a sense yeah but also sort of uh, sort of emphasize that uh, symbols can be very broad in their meaning they don't have to be specific um, especially in mystical symbolism usually a symbol and mysticism has multiple layers of meaning mm -hmm. all encompassed into one symbol so some of the poems that are very abstract or maybe even shorter but sort of vague you can't really determine what their meaning is those most likely have multiple layers of meaning to them okay on purpose when you, when you start off writing some of these poems, uh, do you know where they're going? Or are you a little bit more freeform? I know that you said that you, uh, you've you been listening to a lot of jazz. Do you, yeah. do you say, hey, I'm gonna go from point A to point B to point C? Or do you start off at point A and just say, hey, uh, this is gonna take me where it takes me? I feel like poems like kind of form inside of me. Okay. When I'm like going through something or really contemplating a, a particular feeling or just like thoughts I'm having about something, it could be political, it could be a relationship, and the poem sort of forms, and then I kind of... You're more of a vessel for the poem. Sort of. It feels like that sometimes, okay. like, like channeling, I guess, but not really. Um, a lot of times I'll sort of start with like a phrase, or I'll think of a, a line, or, and then start with that, and then just sort of go with it, and just see what comes out. And then, like I said, it'll either grow, or I'll go back to it and just take things away and, and shrink it down. Um, Usually I start with a general idea though, like a general concept that I know I'm trying to portray in this poem. Like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like laughing at the dinner table. Okay. That one, uh, which was about you know a guy who I uh, <laughs> sort of got involved with, and I met his family, and they were Muslim, and I sort of like I knew I wanted to paint this you know picture of what I went through of an actual scene, something I actually went through, okay. but also tie it to these bigger themes outside of us eating at the dinner table, so sort of likening the dinner table to the world itself mm -hmm. as sort of like a dinner table. Yeah. So some of the last lines sort of allude to that, and then just touching on bigger themes than just like, you know, my sexuality, but prejudice in general. Yeah. So not just prejudice against me, but like prejudice against Muslims, prejudice against, you know, any particular group that we single out and demonize. 
So, you know, that poem's a narrative and it deals with specific images and a specific story, but it's tying them to these, like, higher themes and concepts that I knew from the beginning, like, I wanted in that poem. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually have a quote here from that poem. It's okay. probably my favorite poem um, of yours, and if I could just, if I, if, if I may. Sure, go if for I it. May, um, this is from Daniel, laughing at the dinner table. I also saw Americans. I didn't feel any more American than them. Sure, they carried their traditions closer, which I envied. Individualism consumed my family long ago through generations, but they were still Americans. I, I think that that's a very powerful line. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a family very different from your own, very different from what would be perceived as the mainstream of American families. But laughing at the dinner table, you could have just called that the American dinner table. I mean, that, that was anybody. That was yeah. anybody. I mean, that was like I, I, it was just a really powerful line. I actually had to go back and reread it a couple times. Um, that experience, and um, yeah, just interesting. Yeah. I, I, I want to commend you on uh, yeah. Well, on, there's, on that there's, one. there's a scene there where at the end where I sort of well, in the beginning of the poem, I describe walking through his house and sort of looking at you know verses from the Quran on the walls and things and like that. If you that. Were to switch them out with and then Christian later, religious yeah, symbols, or later in the poem, I sort of state you know if you were to just take these you know you know, sudas from the Quran and just replace them with crucifixes and stuff and, you know, replace the pictures of his family with mm -hmm. pictures of, uh, you know, an average white family, for example, mm -hmm. in America, you, there would be no difference. There would be no difference. I wouldn't really feel a difference, you know. They, they felt equally as American to me. They were just, you know, more tied to their own culture from their own country, but, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there is a unity to humanity. We, we do try to divide, divide ourselves and we do try to put ourselves in boxes, but at the end of the day, when you get past the, uh, the top layers, we're, we're a lot, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, we, we are very similar mm -hmm. in that we do have uh, certain emotions that we Similarly hold dear. struggles. Values, struggles, it's a great one. Do you have a favorite writer? Favorite writer? God, that's hard. Yeah, that is a hard one. Like, there's, you know, there's literature and then literature. I, I also read a lot of, you know, scholarly type books. Let's talk about let's talk like, about uh, literature. Literature. Uh, I'm trying to think. Poet wise, right now, Rumi, because Rumi. He's, yeah, I've been reading him nonstop. He's sort of been a, a huge influence on that book in particular. Mm -hmm. I love Khalil Gibran. He's one yeah. of my favorite poets. And, and tell me about him when I was in high school, The Prophet. Yes. We should make a movie it's about am it. Right? It's amazing. Like that book is iconic. You know, I think everyone should read that book more than once. Something that's been translated yeah. into like a multitude yeah. of languages all over the world. Same it's one of those classics. Same thing with Rumi. Around. Same thing with Rumi. I mean, he's he's been around for over nine hundred years now. We're wow. still reading. <laughs> you know, he's still being translated. Good's good. Um, let me see. Authors also. Obviously, I love like J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter and that type of stuff because that's like what uh invoked my love for reading from the yeah. beginning. Scholarly people, I mean, you know, I love Richard Dolan. Richard Dolan? Okay. <laughs> I'm a big Richard Dolan fan. I'm really into the UFO topic, and he's just, uh, to me, he's like an excellent example of how a scholar should deal with that topic and write about that topic. Just totally, um, what's the word, unintimidated by consequences, unintimidated you know, by um, public rejection, mainstream and, rejection. And debating you. He's not afraid to debate. He's, mm -hmm. he's, um, he's very polite. You know, he has, he has excellent manners, and he's just very organized in how he puts information together on such a difficult topic. Um, and then, uh, you know, more obscure writers like Laura Nightyatchik, who's mm -hmm. much more controversial. Um, and then Jacques Vallée, you know, those are people all dealing with that, that topic, you know. Um, I don't know, I, I, I try to read a lot, so it's hard to kind of pick favorite writers sometimes. Yeah. I feel like that changes throughout our life. Yeah. As we read more and more, we're always going to discover someone new who inspires us anew. It's kind of like listening to a new band. Yep. There's always another awesome band yes, out there. Yes, definitely. <laughs> always another awesome band out there. So th this will this will lead me to my next question. You mentioned Dolan. You mentioned, and I'm going to butcher her name, Laura Knight. <laughs> Yachik. Yachik. I always want to say Jet Jet. I, I'm not even going to. I'm yeah, not yeah. even going to embarrass myself. It's by Polish. That when it's Polish, yeah. Um, what are some philosophical trends that you uh, identify with? I, I mean, would you say that? You're on the left side of the political spectrum. If, if we were to, to, to break it down to a simple left versus right spectrum, and I do explain to my students that the political, or, um, the political philosophical spectrum is much greater than the left-right spectrum. But for laymen and for the, in the most simplistic terms, would you put yourself on the left side of the spectrum? I feel like most people who listened to my views, I guess, on politics themselves would probably place me on the left. So 
I suppose that's probably more towards where I lean. Uh, I guess you call me a progressive mm-hmm. if you want to use that term. I personally don't like to put political labels on myself. I uh-huh. feel like political views are, should always be in flux. They should always be um, changing. They should be something you're always reevaluating, always um, you know, assessing. Self-criticism is a big part you know, of yeah, the criticism of, of every aspect of your life. You know, not holding ourselves into one category. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't like putting an ism on my mind. Okay. You know, I feel it's very limiting. And, you know, ever since I broke away from the church and stuff when I was younger, yeah. I sort of uh, kept that mindset that I don't want to put an ism on my mind. Church had a big effect on you as a In as that a sense, person. yeah. I mean, it's like the whole, like, not questioning type of thing. I mean, yeah. it's not, church, not, not church, the church is Catholic, stuff. right? Yeah. Yeah. Church, church has a very black and white us or them yeah. way of looking yep. at the world that a lot of people have trouble identifying. I asked you for your favorite writer and of course that was a hard question. So I'm going to do the right thing and ask you an even harder question. <laughs> what are some of your favorite bands? Okay. Well, let me ask you this favorite bands. <sighs> and this is going to be even harder than that one. Do you have a favorite art form? Favorite art form. I guess I'll start with favorite bands. Um, well, you already know I listen to a lot of different yeah. types of music, so it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing and a curse. I don't know. I really. I mean, lately the last band I like saw live was RX Bandits. Okay. Yeah, they're. Uh, it's a throwback. Yeah, they're like. Um, I guess progressive rock you can call them, but they incorporate different styles like reggae and jazz fusion and you know psychedelic and. They're very uh, political, so they're you know it's pretty radical songs. But they also you know have the personal type songs about like romance and, and that type of stuff, and they freaking rock. You hey, should, that's the most important part. <laughs> you should go see them. Because if it doesn't them. sound good, I really don't. <clears throat> care. You should go see them. Like I definitely love bands that when you go see them live, they um they add to the live performance. So okay. they'll take parts of a song, and they'll extend it. Or like add an entire new section into a song and just mm. bam, throw that in there out of nowhere, and you get that uniquely for your live performance for that tour, and you'll never hear it again that way. Yeah, the live <laughs> performance is a big part of just bands in general. Yeah. I mean, Mars Volta will take. They do that. They'll take a a seven minute song that should be a four minute song and turn it into a fifteen yeah. minute song. They'll drag it out. They do improv and, and things like that. I love bands who do that. Mm-hmm. Usually, my favorite bands are like that. Deftones are notorious. Yeah, Deftones is excellent. That. Metal-wise, Between the Buried and Me is mm-hmm. like my favorite metal band. Uh, Devin Townsend is just one of my favorite musicians ever. I think, he's, I think he's one of the best things that ever happened to music, in fact. But he's underrated as hell. So metal and hard rock in general are overrated. Underrated. Yeah. What am I talking underrated? about? Underrated? Actually, I mean, I had a friend tell me recently uh, at work that uh, on the internet, on websites like Spotify and things like that, that metal is actually statistically the most looked up genre of music, the most popular. I, I didn't even believe it. heads are more. passionate. They are people. passionate. It depends what, it, the passions that you're invoking <clears throat> or evoking might be a little bit different, but metalheads are some of the most eloquent, well-spoken, passionate, also some of the yeah. biggest dum-dums. But yeah, yeah. Some of the most intelligent <laughs> people I've met have been metalheads. I was, metal more, I was more into metal when I was younger and mm-hmm. angrier and angstier. Of course. But I still think there's a place for it. There's still metal music that I love. There's bands that I'll never not love. And you know, I think metal is perfect to embody the emotion of anger, and that's mm-hmm. part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. So I think it's equally valid as a music form, as any other music form. What's your favorite art form? Favorite art form? I mean, I, I guess I should say writing, because <laughs> I'm a writer, and that is what I got my degree in. That's what I chose to hone in on. But um, could you choose <clears throat> between writing and music? Would you even want to make that decision? I wouldn't want to make that decision. And, you know, I love visual art, too. I don't really paint a lot. But, you know, as you know, a lot of the research I do centers around symbols and symbolism and that type of thing. So visual art is also, like, huge. Urban Jungle Mystic was something you wanted to get out, but you're actually working on something else right now. Also, you're working on on a manuscript right now. Um, Could you project about how long you think it's going to be? I don't know. I wanted to try to get something done by the end of the summer. I don't know if that's possible. But yeah, I've been spitting out new pieces. I've sort of been thinking about separating the material, mm-hmm. my new material, into two books. Okay. Because some of it is, you know, I have the material that's more personal and deals with relationships and my family and, and political views and that stuff. And I was sort of thinking of taking that material and separating it into one book. And then all the mystical stuff, all the stuff that uses like rubaya and rhymes and vague symbols on purpose you know things very the more philosophical poems the okay. esoteric ones I want to separate into 
another book in and of itself okay. that uh, incorporates also my painting and my visual arts and that stuff into it. Um, but it's pretty much like it's like taking Urban Jungle Mystic in a sense and splitting it in two because yeah. Ur- Ur- Urban Jungle Mystic took those two styles and melded them together. So you have the political, the personal, and you also have the mystical, the you know the stuff dealing with things bigger than me and yeah. bigger than the world. So I mean, you're you're a man. You, you're like me. I. I, I, I wouldn't call myself a jack of all trades, but I'm definitely a liker of many things. Yes. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this: you um, you write, you play music, you study politics, you study spirituality, and you're a spiritual person yourself. You're a student of history, um, symbolism, so many different things. How do you define yourself? Student of life. Student of life. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Uh, that's the term I I believe I used the same term in the intro, but. Okay. Uh, Student of life, I guess, would encompass all of that because I believe all of us are students of life, even those who haven't learned that yet, that they are a student of life. Uh, to me, life is a school. All, okay. You know, all there is is lessons. Laura Nightyachik's material uses that axiom. Um, but all there is is lessons. I think that's true. I think it's one of the truest things I've ever heard. Um, if there's any purpose for us to be here, it's to learn. And... You know, there is no knowledge to me that's not snake sacred. There's nothing, you know, not worth knowing. Okay. So one of the things I try to tell my students, especially with regard to myself, is um, a lot of big ideas out there, a lot of ideas in general. Um, why not have an opinion on them? Why not have something to say about them? Mm-hmm. That's and that's definitely important. Well, it's like I think it's important to express those opinions too, especially if we're wrong, because yeah. if we don't express our opinions. Even when we're wrong, who's going to point out to us when we're wrong and how are yeah. we going to learn if we don't voice, if we yeah. don't speak up? And a lot of people don't grow because they don't engage in conversations, because they don't express themselves, and because they don't debate people. They're rarely exposed to contrary views than theirs, so they don't learn. Yeah. I mean, people are born in bubbles. I mean, but we'll, uh, we'll, there, there's entire swaths <laughs> of the population in this country that would rather live in their bubbles than uh, yeah and and they you know people. they can choose to do that that's fine and some people want to choose to break those bubbles and and wake up and you know get a wider perspective of what's happening around them and those are the people I write for you've recently come out how much of an influence is your sexuality in your art? Um, since you have recently come out, is it something new that you're exploring? It's definitely new that I'm exploring it. You know, it's like, you start off coming out to your friends, maybe your family first. For me, it was a friend, then family. Like, my grandma was the first one I came out to. So you gradually do that, and then, you know, slowly more to your peers. And then I came out on, on Facebook, you know, a couple years back. And you know, it's one thing to come out on Facebook. It's another thing it's the best to way you do it. Man. Yeah, I mean, it's a quick and easy way. It's a quick and easy way and just be like, "Look, this is how things are. This is what I'm like. This is who I am, whatever." But it's another thing to put your sexuality in print. Okay. You know, to to state that in print in something that I know is going to outlive me mm-hmm. and to just own it. Okay. That's a is definitely a bigger step for me. It's a new step for me. It's something I'm uh, I knew I had to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I felt obligated to do it. Not everyone can do that. You know, not everyone has the freedom to do that. There are a lot of homosexuals who can't come out of the closet. Yeah. And I understand that. I don't expect them all to jump out of the closet, especially if they're, uh, if they're in danger, if their lives are in danger for doing so. But, you know, some people will have to do that and take the risk also to let those who can't know that they're not alone. You know, that's why... Uh, I respect Harvey Milk so much because mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's the gay Martin Luther King. Literally, he, was open. he knew. Got support from he labor knew, unions. he knew the risk he was putting himself into by standing up and being, you know, an openly gay politician who fought for gay rights. You know, he said, "If a bullet should enter my brain, let it destroy every closet door." He recorded that, and he didn't get shot. Mm. Um, so it's prophetic. Those were tough times. Tough times. Yeah. I believe you touch on that in laughing at the dinner table. Um, can I be a bit presumptuous and say that the gentleman that you were the friend in that dinner table was somebody you might have shared some emotions for or feelings for? Uh, it was, yeah, it's someone who I care about very deeply. I still care about him. Um, 
Was he afraid to come out to his family? Uh, he did recently, actually. He did? Yeah, so there was, there was, you know, lame circumstances surrounding that. Let's just say he's, you know, sick now. But okay, it didn't work out, but I care about him very deeply, and meeting him definitely inspired me. Meeting him taught me a lot, and... You know, meeting him gave me that glimpse into his life, into his family, that sort of uh, inspired that poem, you know, that can connect my own oppression to their oppression as yeah. Muslims, you know, because to me they are, the essence of oppression is the same, you know, yeah. just ostracizing a group and other. And I mean, you talk about him being very much in touch. I come from a large family. Um, I'm thankful that I come from a, a very open-minded family. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that I don't have to separate open-mindedness with love. I can only imagine um, the anxiety or the fear that this this young gentleman had to deal with, and not wanting to, you know, not wanting to upset his family and and hurt that 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 closeness he had yeah. with his family. Well, that was a, a hard thing. It is a hard thing. To deal and, with. You know, his traditions and values are very important to him, and they're mm -hmm. still very important to him. And but I, I think you know he knew of it. He knew that he would eventually have to tell them and he knew his parents would love him regardless and from what I hear he's fine and it's all going well Good. so um, you know it also goes to show that you know my own judgments in that poem yeah. you know when I say how I suspect they might feel if they knew about my sexuality maybe they wouldn't have cared as much as I thought they would have um, you know we're all oppressors yeah. and we've all been oppressed <laughs> yeah. that's the reality yeah. of the world so here's one I'm going to throw you a little curveball how do you feel about the word homosexual um, is there any reason that you use it despite the fact that it's fallen out of the mainstream? Um, for instance, GLAD includes it, um, includes the word in its list of offensive terms. Do you use it because it's familiar? Do you use it in any terms of protest? Or do you use it just because you, it doesn't bother you in any kind of way? I use it because it's succinct and it's to the point. Okay. You know, homosexual. You okay. Know, same sex attraction. <laughs> okay. Um, so it sums that up in the sense of that's what I am. Predominantly, I'm, I, you know, women don't turn me on. So All right. I am a homosexual. Which uh, is good for guys yeah, like me. True. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take all your dates. Um, I see no problem with that word. Okay. I think it's, you know, the least offensive of many of the terms applied to us. In it, fact, it's part, definitely less offensive than a yeah, lot of other terms. Yes. Out there. Part of me kind of even views gay as a little bit more offensive than Why that. Why is that? Um, just because it can't, you know, comes from a root word meaning happy. And I, <laughs> and I always sort of found it ironic that a, a group, you know, of people who've been oppressed for so long and, you know, historically have, you know, killed themselves and for, for that oppression mm -hmm. to be labeled as happy. I thought okay. it was interesting. But I understand why that word may have come about. You know, when, when homosexuals did start coming out and parades and stuff like that became normal, yeah, they were happy and they were perceived as being happy, so they were called gay. Okay. How do you feel about the word queer? Queer. Um, I, I've, I've been to... It, it means weird. It means odd. And I mean, I, I've been to some... Uh, <clears throat> socials conferences where they're very open about using the word queer and at first it kind of took me aback because I was like all right you know uh, to me queer means weird yeah you know but uh, I knew a lot of uh, uh, gay and lesbian individuals who, who were, fine, were with fine with it open with it I mean once again I guess this takes us back to the beginning and the power that words have true uh, I wouldn't personally be offended by the word queer because mm -hmm. you know personally I like I like weird I think <laughs> Strange is interesting. You were queer before you were queer. I was queer before I was queer, but I would probably <laughs> use the term in a broader sense. Okay. You know, as meaning weird, and I, I don't think it should just be applied to homosexuals or LGBT people, so. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, what place do your parents and or family hold in terms of influence? I know you've mentioned your, your, your grandmother being a huge influence on you. Your brother's a musician also. Mm-hmm. What, what, how, what, where, does your, where does your family fit in in terms of influence? Are you close with extended family members? Are you close with your nuclear family? How does, how does that work out? I'm close with my nuclear family. Uh, we have a small family. Mm -hmm. My mom's side I'm not very close with. Only like one of my cousins do I like have any contact with. And a lot of them sort of, uh, sort of neglect her. They ignore her. And mm -hmm. I think that might have to do with her disability. I don't want to make any accusations. Yeah. I just know what I know from my life that they haven't really been around. Um, I'm very close to my my aunt, you know, on my on my dad's side, his mm -hmm. sister, and really that's that's my closest family is my aunt, my two cousins, my uncle, um, my grandmother, my mom, my dad, my brother. That's you know okay. that, that's the gist of my nuclear family. 
a huge, huge impact on me. I mean, it's my environment. It, it shaped me. Uh, my mom has cerebral palsy, so she lives in a wheelchair. She, you know, is not intelligent, really. She's, um, you know, beautiful soul, great mother, very loving. You know, her, her kids are everything to her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's difficult growing up with parents who have, you know, disabilities, learning disabilities, things like that. There was a lot of things growing up that, you know, parental roles that they couldn't fulfill. Mm-hmm. And my grandma stepped up and fulfilled a lot of those roles that my parents couldn't. And that's why I sort of, you know, revere her and dedicated the book to her because she's like my second mom. The book, by the way, Urban Jungle Mystic, <laughs> a collection of poems, 2009-2015, available on Amazon.com. Buy it, buy it. <laughs> but yeah, I, um, yeah, my grandma, I owe her everything. I owe her everything. I don't even know what I'm going to do when she's gone. I'm going to freak out. I'm, I don't even know if I'm going to be prepared to handle life without yeah. her. But, uh, and my brother, too, you know. Like, I started playing music alongside him. And when I, was, uh, when I started playing drums, he started playing guitar. Um, he eventually moved on from, from rock and started doing electronic music and DJing and, DJ. and that type of thing. We're pretty close. We're very different. You know, we have different values, different lifestyles, different friends. But we always touch base. We it's always brothers. we always support each other in whatever we do. Um, and so, I don't know. I love my brother. I love my family. Yeah, brothers, <laughs> I yeah. love my family. I know. I know. You know. The poem in there portrays a more negative side of living in mm-hmm. my household and what it's like. But uh, you know, I'm also very lucky. Even though I have disabled parents and we're broken, all that stuff. I have two parents. You know, and they and they are there. Some and people don't. You. Some people don't have none. You know, yeah. some people have no parents or yeah. or one parent or you know an abusive parent. My parents weren't like that. I had a great childhood. I was never abused. I, you know, for the most part, I had all the things I needed to thrive. And mm-hmm. you know, and and my grandma to cultivate my literacy and encourage me. Let's uh, let's do some word association. Okay. Okay. This should be funny. Um, <laughs> let, 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 so the Meaning. first one I'm gonna go with is uh, what is gnosis? Gnosis. Gnosis. Oh, my ignorance is right. showing. No, it's what cool. Is, what is I, I've heard it like gnosis and stuff like that because that G I, I think is silent, but gnosis. Gnosis, like knowledge. gnosis. Gnosis. Gnosis literally gnosis? means knowledge, but more specifically, um, you know, gnosticism was a, a very sort of condemned sect of Christianity okay. in the very, very early days of forming Christianity. Some scholars even think that it's the original Christianity okay. that was destroyed and tampered with after Constantine. But really, it teaches a totally different radical view of spirituality, meaning you have a Jesus, like in the Gospel of Thomas, for example, you know, telling you to go within and find the Christ within, and things like that. And the church does not like that. That takes control away. Yeah, it takes control. Oh, you're going to find God in yourself and you don't need an intermediary or a priest or the church? How are you going to confess? Heresy. You're going to confess yourself? Burn them. (laughs) Gnosis is is divine knowledge. That's That's what it pretty much means. It means direct knowledge of God, meaning knowledge, period, is knowledge of God. To them, all knowledge is knowledge of God. You know, knowledge was sacred. And to them, you know, God was like a, a big mind that were sort of thoughts in this big mind. So divine knowledge is seeing that, is seeing that interplay, that pattern between all things in the cosmos. Okay. Spirituality. Spirituality. Uh, transformation of the self. That's what I would say is the goal of spirituality. Transformation of the self. And in doing that, you can uh, transform the world outside of you. You can make an impact on the world outside of you. But it's inner transformation. That's the point of spirituality. It's not to control. It's not to create a bunch of, you know, churches and organizations to, you know, tell people how to live and stuff. Spirituality is something you find on an individual, personal level. Okay, that's good. So, from spirituality, religion. <laughs> religion. I mean, institutionalization of, of uh, ways of thinking, which can be dangerous sometimes. Like, I use the word mystic in my book very specifically because the mystics existed in all the core religions. All the core, you know, all the main religions had this core inner circle of esoteric teachers who saw past the boundaries of their religious establishments. So, you know, Islam, you had the Sufis, Christianity, you had the Gnostics, you know, you had the yogis in Hinduism. They all sort of had that inner esoteric teaching and that teaching uh, saw the similarities in in their culture to other cultures and they sort of looked past the boundaries and I mean a good example I guess is like you know uh, like Spain under the Islamic Empire you had this 
huge yeah Al Andalus and stuff you had this huge cross-cultural collaboration where Jewish scholars and Christian scholars and Islamic scholars especially the mystics were all conversing and talking to each other and sharing their views and their texts and they were invaded by Morocco yeah, <laughs> yeah. but you know they were reading the Greeks and they were reading the Romans and that they had preserved all that stuff that we had lost in the West but yeah. get a lot of words from that too that, that, that theory too algebra yeah algorithm mm-hmm I'm not mistaken, and I'm, I'm probably mistaken, um, I once had a Spanish teacher tell me that all words in the Spanish language that begin with A-L come from Arabic. Uh, that's... Sounds that, about right. That I mean, sounds about the, right. The Arabs yeah. had, the Muslims had control of Spain for between eight and nine hundred years. Very long time. Very long and, time. And, uh, they, you know, they had a, they had a huge, six, thriving six, civilization. until about 1492. Yeah. It, it was quite a while, and... You know, they had preserved a lot of the knowledge that was lost in the West, so they mm-hmm. still had all the Roman bathhouses and, you know, the geometry and beautiful architecture and stuff that wasn't yet, you know, reborn in Europe. The yeah. Renaissance hadn't happened yet. Atheism. Atheism. Uh, I was once an atheist at one point. Um, then I realized you can just as dogmatically uh, deny, or like you can dogmatically hold on to disbelief just as much as holding on to belief and. I think atheism is just as much of a, of like a, a conclusive belief system without proof as a religion is in many ways. And, but when I think of atheism, I think of a lot of a materialist reductionist, that all there is to study is what can be measured, what can be seen, you know, the material universe. And, and we've discussed these types we've, of topics before. It. Like this could be a whole other yeah, episode. At another like, day, at a later yeah, date. like psychic phenomenon and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which you know, even though there are hoaxes out there, and Absolutely. I remember, you know, you talked about you know what's his name, uh, the great James Randi, and and how they James you know, Randi, yeah, and they Randi, trick yeah. those scientists and things like that. But the thing is, you can't use those examples to totally dismiss the topic mm-hmm. because then if you stop looking in general because of a few hoaxes, you can yeah. really miss some legitimate. New. That's where the damage. Data. Is. The damage you know? is not looking. I mean, remember, if people can find on YouTube a talk between James Randi and Richard Dawkins. Now, Richard Dawkins can come across as really obnoxious, yep. as kind of an overbearing. I read him all, in high school. <laughs> but he actually told James Randi in a public forum that you ought not to dismiss certain certain ideas, certain certain areas. We'll say because you might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And James Randi, his whole thing is. Hey, um, I want it to be true. That's why he has the whole million dollar challenge. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing with atheism, it's not that people are saying X doesn't exist, it's just saying we haven't found the proof. Well, I, like I said, materialist reductionist mm-hmm. is what I think of when I think of a lot of atheists and stuff. They sort of, you know, there's, a, there's the big argument of consciousness. Uh-huh. What role does consciousness play in the cosmos and the universe? And the materialist reductionist sort of look at consciousness and thinking as just purely the result of chemical reactions in, in the brain. And, and, you know, it could be a deeper phenomenon than that. Consciousness could play a deeper role than that, mm-hmm. than just being a mere product of physicality. In fact, you know, what if physicality is a product of consciousness? What if the two uh, are two, you know, sides of, this, of, of a one pole of the same thing? Um, we don't know. What is consciousness to you? Do you believe in a soul? Are the two related? To me, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To me, uh, life, life has different levels of consciousness. Okay. You know, just because we have conscious consciousness, meaning we're conscious that we're conscious, we're conscious that we can think yeah. and do these things. Self-aware. You know, other creatures still there's an intelligence there. There's some kind of intelligence there, even if they're not self-aware of that intelligence. There's a level of consciousness there. Many animals are self. So you know, I think there's different levels of consciousness, and that consciousness sort of uh, runs through the whole universe. To me, I think it's the glue that holds the universe together. I think that's highly probable. Um, which would align with the Gnostic views and Hermeticism and things like that. That we live in a big mind. Okay. Um, um, capitalism. Capitalism. Profit. Profit, profit, profit. That's what I think of. <laughs> um, Everything's for sale. Exploitation, yeah. Like, you know, the world is just something to own. The world is something to hoard and, you know, sell to people. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm definitely not a capitalist. I know you're not a capitalist. President of the United States. Puppet. I don't even know. If, I don't even think I have to use any more words. Puppet, we're gonna go yeah. with puppet. We'll go with puppet. Um, <laughs> okay. Presidents are, are, are not elected. They're selected. 
you know, even the candidates who go up on that TV and debate each other during election years, they were already predetermined to have been there. A lot of them wound up having the same funders, the same, you know, financiers of their campaigns, and in the end, they're going to cater to the same exact system, regardless of who gets in. And it's like, I, we talk about this a lot, you know, like the difference between, like, like state politics and federal politics, you know, I guess, yeah, maybe in state level voting, things like that make, can make changes. You can, you know, make your living situation a little more comfortable if you can push on the state level to make changes in your state. On the federal level, we have no say who the president is. And if the president ever dares to speak up against the, the system in which he, you know, sells, because he's the salesman for that system, for the wars, for the profiteering, uh, they'll kill him, like Kennedy. You know, Kennedy wasn't perfect, but he certainly pushed back against a very powerful structure that, you know, he saw this structure controlled the country and he saw that it was changing the direction of the country, tried to push back, they assassinated him. All right, and you believe that Kennedy was assassinated, that wasn't a random act of, of violence? There's way too many witnesses who heard shots from the grassy knoll, sorry. Uh, any, any, just anyone with a basic understanding of physics. Okay. You know, if they see that magic bullet theory that the Warren Commission gave us, they should, you know, right away red flags should be going off in your head like, okay, this story is bullshit. This makes absolutely no sense. You're clearly not telling the truth. Uh, Republicans. Republicans. <laughs> um, <laughs> not all there. <laughs> not in touch with reality. We'll just say that. Uh, harken back to the bubble we were talking about earlier, living in the bubble. Living in the bubble. Democracy. Democracy. Mob rule. We don't live in a democracy. Um, we don't even live in mob rule. That's not what happens. I'm let not saying say, mob let rule. Let me say this. Let me say this. Democratic republic. That's what the country was supposed to be. And that's what we were founded on. Uh, that's not what we are now. There's, a, there's actually a recent study. I don't know if you heard about this. There was a Princeton study that's sort of a concluded that the United States is not a democracy but is an oligarchy. I think a that, Princeton that study. A couple years old. But yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it basically just. I doubt things have changed, you know, since the study came out. But, you know, the point is a Princeton study is telling us, like, we live in an oligarchy, meaning a, a government controlled by a small handful of elite wealthy people who control the biggest central banks and corporations. Um, that's not a democracy. Let's end this, not end this, but let's end the word association on a high note. Grandmother. Grandmother. How do you refer to your grandmother? My matriarch. Yeah? Yeah. She's, uh, she's my, I call her the survivor in, in one of my poems. Why would you call her that? Because she, she kept the family together. She, you know, managed all the bills. Strong woman. Very strong woman. She, you know, divorced her husband. You know, when my dad was like 12 or 13, so she wound up raising, you know, three kids on her own. So for this is your maternal grandmother, the one that you live with? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, she had, she had another boyfriend, too, during raising them, but for the most part, she, you know, did it all herself as a, as a single mother, and she didn't just raise kids once, you know, she raised kids twice. She raised her kids, and then she raised my brother and I, so, I mean, I think of her, I, I think of my foundation. Okay. In my dedication, I called her my foundation stone. Yes. That's how I look at her. Explain this quote. I would rather know uncomfortable, harsh truths about my world and my surroundings than put my head in the dirt for the sake of comfort. I believe this comes from the introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the very definition of growth. Okay. Is exposing yourself to uncomfortable things. A new experience. But in this case, I guess... Uh, information that we might not want to know, you know, the tragedies happening around us in the world, uh, what the power structure is doing, all those things. To know those things is uncomfortable. To know those things hurts. A lot of people want to just plug their ears and turn their eyes away, and they can do that. They're fine to do that. But what people have to understand is, you know, ignoring the dark things doesn't make them go away. Mm. Ignoring the dark things just means, you know, when it when it's Knock, the can down the road. When it's knocking on your doorstep, you're not going to be prepared for it. You're going to be the person running around with your head, like, like a chicken with its head cut off, because you don't have knowledge. You didn't, you know, you didn't tough out, you know, learning, because learning is tough. I commonly compare it to, um, 
Like I, I like to compare like reading books and stuff to like lifting weights. Okay. Right. So like when you're lifting, when you're lifting weights, you you start with one weight, you lift it for a while, you know, you get sore, you lift it for a while. Eventually, it takes you know too much lifting to get sore from that weight, and you got to move on to a heavier weight. But what are you doing when you uh, when you work out? You're literally tearing your muscles, right? You're tearing them. You're you know, causing pain to them. It's a challenging process. You're, it's a challenging process, but you're like you're literally ripping the muscle fibers so they can be rebuilt and built up stronger. Well, that that's what learning is like to me. Learning is that it's exposing yourself to new ideas, especially ideas that might conflict with your beliefs, um, and might tear your beliefs down, which might be what you need. You know, that discomfort to learn. That's a big part of science. Yes. A lot of times scientists come across answers that conflict their hypotheses and they're forced to start over. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I guess we wouldn't have the things we enjoy in this world without that process. Right? Yeah, it's a very important process. It's, it's very, you know, growing pains. There's a reason we use that, growing pains. Or terms like, the truth hurts. Mm. You know, it's a cliche term, but it's true. There's truth you know? in cliches. It, there is a lot of truth in cliches and little axioms like that that we pass around, but... You know the truth does hurt that's why but I would rather know it that's what I mean by that quote that I would rather know it I would rather be hurt by the truth I would rather be smacked around and dragged you know that dragged across the room by my hair by the truth than to not know it and just walk around with rose-colored glasses like you know everything's happy dandy who do you believe me or your lying eyes <laughs> even though you're young what do you want to be your legacy if I can make someone love learning I said this in my last interview but I definitely want my legacy to be inspiring someone to search to seek if I can get someone to dig for meaning in the world and to to want to understand the world and to like to thrive on that to thrive on learning that would make me happy you know I would die a happy person if if someone you know sends me a letter in the mail or an email and says hey you know I read your book and then you know it, it made me question this and question that and I never thought those things before or it made me pick this book up and read this book or you know it made me attend this protest or something like that if I could like inspire someone like that to want to be a better person that's that's a good enough legacy for me you know and also you know it'd be nice to take care of my family and <laughs> have money uh, to uh, live a little more comfortably um, but yeah, that's it, to inspire, to get someone to love learning. What is success? What, what is success for you? How, how, what would you have to do to consider yourself successful? I mean, it would be nice to have a family in the future. Uh, it's not necessary. I'd like to find a, a nice husband or something like that eventually. But, do you uh, want to get married one day? Yeah, I mean, it'd be cool. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, like, wait around for it or, or look for it, but it would be nice to have you know, a partner in my life adventure. But success, you know, success would be to, you know, like I said, to see my art inspire, like to see my legacy play out, you know, to see people, uh, to see people encouraged to learn, to see people encouraged to search, to see people encouraged to uh, fight back against uh, the systems that are oppressing them. What do you like about your tattoos? What, why did you choose them? Is there anything specific? Um, you're obviously big into symbolism, and that's evident in the, uh, in, in the designs you've chosen. Why did you choose the, the particular tattoos that you have? I look at my tattoos or, as uh, reminders of principles. So yeah, they are spiritual type tattoos. They are symbolic tattoos. They're, I drew them out myself for the most part. So they're original? Sort of. I mean, they're based on other things that I saw, and I would sort of draw from that idea and then make up my own idea from it. But yeah, they're reminders. They're, they're, they're symbols I put a lot of thought into before I decided, like, I want this on my body. You know, I wanted to make sure it was something so, like, universal, so deep, that I will always look at it and appreciate it through my life, or I'll always look at it and, and even get new meanings out of the symbols over time as I understand the symbols better and better. You know, I definitely didn't get them just for aesthetic value. Yeah. How many do you have? Uh, it's hard to count them, because, like, like, the one on my right arm is sort of like a mandala. It's sort of pieces that are put together. Yeah. You know, as one big piece. But uh, I guess you could say, like, one, two, three, four, like, five, five? six. Or you could just yeah. count this as one. <laughs> this is two more. Um, 
Well, Dan, it's been great sitting here talking to you. It's been awesome. Once again, the book is Urban Jungle Mystic, a collection of poems, 2009-2015, by Daniel De La Fe. (laughs) I like uh, to say that. (laughs) Available on Amazon.com. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Dude, thank you so much. talking about peace.